All right, here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode 441 being recorded on March 16th, 2017. I'm Ryan Schrout. I'm Jeremy Holstrom. I'm Josh Walrath. And here on March 15th, I'm Ken Addison. Wait, is it really March 15th? Yeah. Yep. It is All March day. 15th. This when, was recorded. When you're hearing this, it's probably March 16th, at least. But I definitely said recorded on, so this is yeah, recorded on March yeah. 15th. There, there was no escape there. This is not recorded in, in the future. Uh, clearly, I'm not at the office, and clearly, based on the uh, decorations behind me, I'm at a hotel. Um, so, I, Is I that a shower curtain or a real curtain? <laughs> you know, the best lighting was in the bathroom, so that's where I decided to, to set up shop. Um, seemed to make sense to me, um, but so just I have a limited schedule here. No I'm going to we're going to walk through some of these early stories, the things I think the ones that are are, are crucial this week, the ones that I kind of had a hand in, uh, and then uh, I'm going to hand it off to the rest of the team to finish up. So we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, uh, including what are we going to start with here? We're going to start with the GeForce. I can't see the rundown on the side from this four by three display, so everybody knows why I can't see what's going on. Um, so. Uh, by the way, quick things here. Uh, I assume I assume since I can't see the rundown, we still have uh, pcpro.com slash subscribe uh, if you want to watch our live streams, which we recorded on Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and if you go to that URL, pcpro.com slash subscribe, uh, you will get a, uh, a little form here for you to submit your name and email address, and we'll send you a notice when we do uh, live streams like this or like the ones we did last week with Tom Peterson from NVIDIA. Uh, and obviously, obviously, we still have our Patreon campaign going. That's at patreon.com slash pcper. Um, that allows you to do a direct monthly contribution if you think the work that we are doing here is interesting or useful or effective or entertaining. Any of those categories really qualify in my mind, for you to be able to contribute to what we do and uh, have your say in there. So uh, patreon.com slash PCPer, we really appreciate that. Anybody that adds or creates a contribution while I am on the show this evening uh, will get a shout-out during, uh, during the live cast as well. Okay, now are we on to the first story, guys? Is that where we're at? Correct. GTX 1080 okay. Ti. No, it's the TI, damn it. I don't understand why we have to have this debate. Do you really say tie? No, I just want to ruffle your feathers. <laughs> Tom Tom legitimately says 1080 tie. Uh, and apparently there is a debate inside NVIDIA uh, on whether or not it's TI or, T, uh, or TI or tie. And clearly the answer is TI. So uh, the GeForce GTX 1080 Ti, it's not a surprise anymore. We talked about this last week because they announced everything except, you know, reviews going live. We've already talked about the specifications. Um it is uh, the it is actually the fastest gaming graphics card we've ever tested. It does exceed the performance of the Titan X Pascal. It's based on the same GPU, GPU 102, 30, 3584 CUDA cores. It's got a higher base clock and a significantly higher boost clock, like over 100 megahertz faster on the boost clock. Uh, same texture units. The one interesting thing again is the memory. It's a 352-bit G5X memory bus. Um, with 88 ROPs and 11 gigabytes of memory, as opposed to 12 gigabytes of memory, uh, and that, but but even though it's one gig less on the capacity, it's actually a thousand megahertz faster on the clock speeds. So we're actually running at 1100 megahertz. I'm sorry, 11,000 megahertz instead of 10,000 megahertz. So 11 gigabit per second memory speed there, which is good. Um, 
same TDP, you know, essentially, you know, slightly higher 10.6 versus 10.1 teraflops of peak compute. Um, $699 is obviously the crucial thing there. So like I said, we talked about specifications, what the capabilities of this thing uh, really are. Uh, what I think is important to look at here is kind of the rough sketch of what performance looks like. Uh, I don't want to walk through all these benchmarks. So this is what we you know, we try to avoid. We want to point you to go to PCPer.com to actually look at the content there. Uh, but in general, the 1080 Ti is on par or up to maybe 5% faster than the Titan X Pascal. And in my testing, it does range anywhere from like 25 to 40% faster than a GTX 1080. Uh, and NVIDIA claimed out that the that the, it was 35% faster, 1080 to 1080 Ti. And I found a couple of instances where, where it was a little bit higher than that. I think it's even as high as like 47% once. Um, so actually 50% in Dirt Rally at 4K, for example. Um, it's pretty impressive results. You know, it's you know we're looking at 75 up to maybe almost 100% faster than the GTX 980 Ti, uh, and similar to the Fury X as well, somewhere in the 80s uh, percent range faster than that as well. And obviously, you know, it's single GPU. Everything is very consistent. Everything is very smooth. The frame times are very um, uh, consistent, uh, and you don't really have any kind of stutter issues. That you know, for for single GPUs that are this fast, there's really no concern uh, with frame times or latency or anything of that regard. So as I look at another one, like for, uh, Grand Theft Auto V, um, it's basically on par with the Titan X. It is 37% faster than a 1080 at 4K, and it's 105% faster than a Radeon Fury X at uh, 4K as well. So... Um, I mean, I feel like we talked about all the all the specifications and products and capabilities of this card last week, so I don't really feel like we want to harp on it a whole lot more. Power consumption-wise, it is a little bit higher than um, the Titan X, which is interesting because they both have the same 250-watt TDP. But the higher-speed memory is... Uh, an, an effect, right? There, there's an effect on having higher speed memory. So that's going to add to the total board power a little bit. And um, an interesting kind of, you know, a technical hurdle or technical kind of background note for this is that when you, when they wanted to make the, the, the 1080 Ti, they kind of had to expand the pool of available chips. So it's called widening the yield, uh, if you will, on, on what chips they accept to go into that product. And when you usually when you do that, you get a little you get more variance in the chip to chip performance, and that's in performance of clock speeds or in performance of power draw. Um, so, you know, when I kind of asked Nvidia why is this chip using more power, uh, they kind of said, you know, well, because of that added variance, you know, you'll see some cards that will draw a little bit more than other cards, whereas when you're in tighter tolerances uh, on the yield side. You know, you're you're very restrictive on what the power draw is. It, it doesn't go. You know, it kind of hovers right at 250 watts. Uh, we you know we did uh, measured the power from the PCI Express bus, from the external power connectors on the uh, from the power supply, and none of them kind of exceeded their limits. Uh, we didn't have any more issues like the initial batch of RX 480s that came out. So everything seems in line uh, and expectations there. It's a little bit um, quieter. Than a Titan X as well, based on our testing, it's it's close. It's it's pretty darn close, uh, but it is it is a little bit quieter, and it's kind of basically right on par with the GTX 1080. And I think a lot of that comes, or from what I'm told, that comes from uh, removing of the dual link DVI port 
and allowing more airflow so the fan doesn't have to work as hard to push more air uh, across the the GPU there. So uh, that's impressive. One, uh, although one you'll get plenty I'd of like board vendors add. that will sell uh, third party coolers as well. EVGA has been showing there. You know they've been teasing on Twitter the. Uh, 1080 Ti FTW3 that uses their ICX integration, so it's going to be a custom PCB, added monitoring capabilities in a, in a three-fan cooler as opposed to the blower style here uh, on the Founders Edition. Um, and I don't know, is it actually, is it showing in stock? I haven't looked in a couple of days. Uh, looks like on Amazon I don't really see any. They're all, they all look like they're out of stock. I don't know. I haven't really. I've been traveling the whole week, so I haven't kept up on it. Uh, but it's six ninety nine when it is available is a really good deal. It's hard to it's hard to say that out loud. It's a good deal for a seven hundred dollar video card, uh, but it is a good deal relative to where the Titan X sells at. It is a good deal relative to where the ten eighty even is priced at now, even with its lower price of four ninety nine. I think six ninety nine for two hundred bucks more, you're getting a healthy thirty five percent boost in performance um you know obviously for each person that value that value uh uh uh, plot is going to be a little bit different um but it's but it's definitely there it looks like it's still sold out on new egg everywhere um yeah so your best bet is just going to be keep an eye on what is it now in stock.net i guess and see that any other Thoughts or comments on 1080 Ti? You guys didn't place a whole bunch of pre-orders, I assume. Josh, you probably ordered three or four of them. Yes, obviously I did with my very, very deep pockets. And I forgot to change out my glasses. <laughs> I'll have to do that later. Otherwise, you get glare. But uh, the thing I think I find most interesting about the 1080 Ti is the the decision of NVIDIA to just say, hey, we're going to maximize die size. We're not going to go HBM with this. We are going to increase the, the the memory controller complexity by supporting, you know, not just GDDR5, but GDDR5X. But their performance and their TDPs and obviously their, their yields and the structure are, are good enough to offer this type of product at this price. Because 11 gigs of GDDR5X is still not exactly inexpensive. Right. And when you add up what a, a die that is probably in the 500 to 600 millimeter square range on TSMC 16 nanometer process, those base uh, costs are still going to be pretty, pretty extensive. And so it's nice to see that they're offering at the price they are, the complexity that it is when it's still, when we're kind of looking at it, we're still really new along this FinFET mm-hmm. stage for GPUs. So this is a, a real a, a net positive for NVIDIA, and it's an impressive product, especially considering how fast it goes and that they're able to offer it at the price they are. And this is really going to act as, as a huge foil against AMD's uh, Vega, which will feature HBMM2, mm-hmm. from what we understand, and uh, a very similar die size. So uh, price performance is going to be pretty fascinating later next quarter when we expect to see vega hit the streets cool um and other nvidia news uh we also now can talk about uh fcat vr and the results we got from it so if you actually been paying attention last week we had a live stream with tom peterson about the 1080 ti and we talked about fcat vr and the fcat vr video is on our live uh on our youtube page 
So there's really nothing um, new from like a technological standpoint. Uh, so I don't I don't feel like we need to, to run through that. If you're familiar with FCAT, FCAT VR is very similar, except that it doesn't require hardware capture anymore. It doesn't require it to actually record the video coming out the video card onto an external system and post-process it. Now, we did do that to validate that the FCAT VR software was working, but the default version of FCAT VR should be that it runs locally, that has a, uh, an interface that looks like that. It looks kind of similar to Fraps, right? You give it a directory, it has a hotkey to start, uh, you know, capture time in, in a delay, which is nice for, so it gives you time to put your headset on. Um, and basically what it does is it interfaces with the Oculus and Steam VR APIs to gather performance data, performance data that they provide already in these interfaces um, that you know, developers have access to when they're profiling their games, all that type of stuff. Uh, and, and what it does is, is it then generates a, a big CSV file full of frame times and you know how long did the GPU take to render versus how long did the CPU take to render versus how long did the composite render take. And it has this huge CSV file. And then what you can do is you can take that CSV file, and when I say you, I mean any editor, reviewer, professional, any just consumer that happens to have VR headsets, uh, you know, that if you have a, a, an Oculus Rift or an HTC Vive, you can do this. And you can import that to Excel, and you can look at all the data and figure out what you want to do with it. Um, that is a very painstaking process. And instead, what they did was NVIDIA also built a uh, FCAT analyzer, which is basically just a little application that you drag these CSV files into, and then you can look at all the data and how it's presented. Uh, and it presents a couple of different things. I'm actually going to have you go to, I think, can uh, just go ahead and go to the second page. Um, and we'll go to the second graph on there that has like the blue and green lines. And I'm just going to real quick give an overview of what, what the graphics look like because it is a lot of new data and it's a lot of complex data. Yeah, we can zoom in on it. We'll scroll around through it. So on the top there, the lines that look like frame time. So we're looking at the same uh, video. It was one video card uh, in one game at with one run. And this is uh, data from the hardware capture and the software capture. So what you see there is the green line is the hardware capture. And because the output going to your headset is 90 hertz V-Sync enabled, right? That's, they don't have, you can't turn off V-Sync on a headset, thank God. Um, you only are seeing uh, frame times of either 22 milliseconds or 11 milliseconds, you know, roughly. And then if you scroll to the right a little bit, you'll see there's some spikes uh, and, and stuff like that uh, that kind of indicate, you know, the frame time is going back up, then it comes down, goes up. Those types of things. The blue line is the frame time as presented by the software-based capture that is more accurate in terms of this is how much time the CPU and GPU actually spent rendering it. Uh, and you can see that you know using the tools, you can line it up so that the, the runs uh, are evenly matched, and you can see like where these spikes occur and how they affect the frame rate actually on the screen. Now, the frame rate as it's presented there, and if you actually if you scroll a little bit to the left again for me, Ken, to the uh, where it first drops down from 22 to 11 milliseconds, uh, what you'll see is, like you can see the frame time kind of hovering up a little bit, and then it drops down just enough to hit the 11 milliseconds, and now you're running at 90 frames per second. Now, if you look at the bottom two graphs, these are uh, what we call uh, interval plots. And these are plots of the same amount of time, the same game, the same workload. Um, but in this case, like the more green you have, the better. So this would be where uh, if, the, if the bar is green all the way through and solid all the way across, 
that means that you're getting 90 frames per second, you know, with, with no hitching, no stuttering, whatever. And it's, and it's a good experience. When you see red or yellow, something else is going on. Red indicates a drop frame. Yellow indicates a synthesized frame, which is what asynchronous space warp does on Oculus. Not time warp, space warp. If you don't know the difference between those, uh, make sure you look them up. Uh, but like in this graph, what you see is uh, at that point where the plot drops from uh, all green to half green, half red, or from all green to half green, half yellow, that corresponds with the frame rate going from 90 to 45 frames per second. And so it's basically telling you that because you're getting half green, half red on that, that half of the frames that you see are real frames and the other half are being dropped. Or in the yellow case, it's half of the frames are real frames and half of them are synthesized frames. So it's a really interesting way to display it. The, the general idea is the more green, the better. Uh, and as you go through the data, you'll kind of, you'll see that, uh, that's 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 generally the case right um so in this story you know i went through and we show some results like validating the tool here's how the capture works here's here's a example of good performance here's an example of bad performance um and i think it all kind of makes sense it's a very dense topic and so i'm not going to try to hold your hand through because of two reasons. One, the article exists for that reason, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a long story with a lot of graphs, a lot of detail that you really need to see. If you're listening to this in an audio format, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense Two, the video we did with Tom, which is embedded on the first page of the story, or you can find it on the YouTube channel really goes into detail about what the metrics are, how the, how the, how the uh, VR pipeline works um, and why it's important. The net result of this is I believe we've vetted this tool to the point where you can use it, and I think other reviewers should be comfortable using it to validate VR performance. Uh, it's you know things like Fraps, things like OCAT uh, aren't useful for VR gaming, and it took a totally different type of thing to really get it up and running. And even though the tool was built by NVIDIA, I you know I have been using it, and a couple of other guys have been using it for a few months, um, and we have been able to tweak the results and the presentation of it in the analyzer app to what I believe is a, is a very accurate representation of what you're seeing in the headset, that the graph, as the graph changes, as the image changes uh, that is being generated there, that what you see and experience in the VR headset is accurate. And I went through some data here that talks about, um, compares the GTX 1060 and the RX 480. That was the kind of the most relevant uh, data set I think we have, right? It's the most recent AMD product versus the competitive NVIDIA product. Because uh, obviously, NVIDIA has 1070, 1080, you know, 1080 Ti, and they don't really have any competitors um, that that are recent in the AMD front. Um, the only other thing I would point out here is if we go to Ken, if you go to the um, the 1060 versus RX 480 page, <clears throat> I want to look at uh, that first Chronos bar graph, the high preset. And if you if you're not interested in getting all the line graphs and all the interval plots, and you're just looking for something to to look at as a, at a glance to get performance, this is probably what you want to look at. So this compares the 1016 to 480. There's two bars here. There's blue and orange. The blue lines represent delivered frames per second. This is what you are seeing over the test run in your headset in the VR game itself. The oh, so you can see on the 1060, it's 90 frames per second, meaning it was very smooth. All frames were delivered in time. No issues. Uh, the RX480, it was lower than that at 76 frames per second, which means you were dropping some 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 frames there. It was a slightly more stuttery or less complete experience. Now, what's interesting is the orange bar, which is unconstrained FPS, which basically tells you 
Uh, it's a calculation based on the data provided by uh, Oculus and, and SteamVR APIs that if you were not limited to 90 frames per second and you were not limited to VSync, uh, which would be, okay, say we come up with headsets that are 120 hertz or headsets that can you know go above that or maybe you want to have higher image quality settings. How do you compare the, the performance of these two products uh, in an unconstrained environment, right? Because maybe uh, the, the GTX could clearly go above 90 if it wanted to. The, the orange line is that. So it just takes kind of the inverse of the average frame time for the, uh, that game itself. So that's where you get the 112 frames per second versus the 93. Now, interestingly, 112 is higher than 93 by about, uh, what do I have here? Uh, 13, 15% or so. Um, but if we, if we look at like, clearly the vibe is, or the, in this case, the rift is not providing 112 frames per second. And you might be wondering, well, if the RX 480 has an unconstrained frame rate of 93 frames per second, how is the delivered only 76? And that's because it will sometimes find itself just below 90. Uh, if it's running at 85 frames per second, it has to drop down to 45 frames per second in the delivered frame rate. So all of that kind of gets offset. Uh, when it comes to uh, how the numbers are actually presented. So um, there's you know lots of this type of stuff. If you scroll down two more, Ken, to the edge of nowhere, you'll see an example of um, – next graph uh, down. Yeah, there you go. Uh, sorry. The, uh, where both are delivering 90 frames per second, like they're both a perfect VR gaming experience in that particular application. But then if you look at the unconstrained, you see there's a very slight edge to the GTX 1060. And this is where – you know, you get into, you know, both of these cards provide good experiences there, but maybe you can look at this unconstrained data and say, okay, the 1060 maybe gives you a little bit more headroom, a little bit more future-proof uh, for that particular game or other games that would be built in, uh, in, a, in a similar manner. So, you know, we go through other titles. There's, you know, Abduction, Robo Recall. Uh, we show the benefits of multi-res shading, which is an NVIDIA-specific technology um, that kind of adjusts the rendering the rendered resolution of different subsections of a screen in order to uh, you know, improve performance when you don't need as many pixels on the outside edges, those types of things. Uh, and if you look at like uh, the three-way graph a little bit down from there, actually go down to the GTX 1080 MRS testing, um, and you'll see uh, – next one down. The, uh, uh, you'll, you'll see on the 1080, so it's got more headroom. You can see at MRS 0, which is what that feature turned off, your unconstrained FPS is 130. If you make it turn it on versus make it more aggressive, you can see how the frame rate would scale. Now, to be fair, all three of those settings provide very good experiences in the headset today. Uh, but if you're looking to kind of uh, uh, visualize into the future about what this specific hardware may may support or, or how it will perform, that's kind of the benefit there. So, and, and that testing was done on medium. So if you do have a 1080, I think there's a high and a very high option in that game. So. You obviously right. have the headroom to turn up the settings, which is an important part of it. Yeah. 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 So we want to see things like MRS and lens match shading and all those types of, of features that NVIDIA has talked about being implemented in games. You know, there's, there's more than just raw data. I think like a sports sports bar or whatever it's called uh, has that capability in there. Um, but so don't consider this article like a review of any particular products. Uh, basically see it as an intro to us being able to include VR performance metrics in future articles, right? When we compare Vega to the 1080 Ti, we'll be able to look at standard games. We'll be able to look at VR games. Now I have a very complete tool set uh, and kind of 
look at how these things compare in, um, I would say, a slower growing than expected, but still a very important uh, segment of the market for sure. So I know I rambled on there for a little while. Anybody have any particular thoughts or questions on FCAT VR before we jump into the rise and stuff? Uh, do, do you have a FCAT vomit factor yet? Can you measure that? Uh, no, that that could be a metric that we include going forward, yes. That should be a nice yes. little borderline going across the graph where nausea below and you're probably okay to be above. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you got to have demonstrations of – and honestly, I would be the one to know that because uh, I, I was the most susceptible to this type of stuff when it first began. But um, I give this title uh, three pails. <laughs> now we're talking. Here's how many buckets you may or may not need. Um, so let's talk about Ryzen stuff. Uh, there are several things that have occurred. Josh is going to talk in a little bit about Ryzen 5 and that announcement that was made today. Not a launching of the processor, but they they're, they have announced um, what Ryzen 5 will be and uh, how much. Did they talk about how much it will cost? I'm very curious about that, actually. Yes, um, they have. But do we but want to talk about Win10 scheduler first before we get to Ryzen 5? I do. No, okay. I do. Let's do I was that, just teasing. Then. It was called. A, it was in the professional world. We call it a tease, Josh. We're, we're bringing people along for the entirety of the show, oh, right? Like you're teasing me too. And here I thought it was just my wife. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't. I don't ever. No. Wednesday ever want to is do that. Ryan's night. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> up until the end. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Ryzen processor and Windows 10 scheduler. Um, this is something, uh, it got a huge amount of, of buzz. There, uh, Alan posted an article after he and I and Ken did some testing with uh, the Ryzen 7 1800X. There was a, basically, uh, in, in response to the lower-than-expected gaming performance at 1080p, there was one of the answers that people had uh, was, oh, the Windows 10 scheduler doesn't know how to properly place threads on this processor. It doesn't understand the SMP topology. Okay, um, And... My experience and Alan's experience had been that that's not the case. Uh, it is, in fact, it is accurately doing it. And so we wanted to get to the bottom. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I thought somebody said something. Sorry. The uh, LTE latency. No, that, that's, the that's the cleaning lady wanting to come in. <laughs> yeah, come on in. The podcast has, has started already, but you can <laughs> join in. Um, so essentially what we did was we did testing to prove that the SMT division of Windows 10 onto this processor was accurate. And we did that using a kind of handmade synthetic application. And we did that using um, a storage benchmark that Alan has been using for a long time. And we, in, in long story short, as we clearly showed that there was uh, proper separation of workloads across physical cores and they weren't misrepresenting logical cores. Now, one of the things we did in that process, and, I, and I'm shortchanging this a lot because I feel like uh, this has been in story for about a week, um, <clears throat> and we also posted a video on our YouTube channel where Alan and I talked about it for about 30 minutes. So if you really want to get nerdy on this discussion, that's where you'll, that's where you'll find it. But in the, in the process of doing this, we also ran an application. So one of the things was, okay, Windows thinks that it was putting the right threads on the right processors or on the right putting the putting the work on the right threads, uh, but maybe it was misunderstanding the physical topology of the processor. Maybe it didn't core one and core zero weren't logical cores on the same physical core. Maybe it was core one and core four. 
or core zero and core four, right? So how do we test that? How do we know um, that it's doing the right thing? Uh, I don't know if the video is just frozen on my side or if we're looking at the same image um, for this whole time, but um, I want, yeah, I want to go down to the uh, part where we're looking at the pinging of cores. So there's another another application where we showed um, basically an application that asks for a thread to return data uh, of with no work attached. The idea being that um, a thread that is talking to another thread on the same physical core will have the lowest latency in the system, but a thread talking to a thread on a different physical core will have slightly longer latency, and then a thread talking to a thread on another you know, socket would be even longer than that because they have to talk through physical memory. So go up to the graph above that for me, Ken, so we can show the, the Intel one. Uh, that is what the Intel 5960X looks like. And the important part here is that those dots on the bottom are threads talking to threads that exist on the same physical core. So they have a you know latency of 16 nanoseconds, whatever it is. The line across the top is when any thread wants to talk to any other thread on any other physical core. So, you know, core one talking to core three or seven or eight or whatever it was. Um, that is your hence, about 80 nanoseconds. That's the wonders, the wonders of a ring bus. Yeah. Correct. It's all pretty damn, it's bi directional. So it can go one way or the other and, and jump spots or network yep. nodes that you want to talk to. So yep. it's really consistent. Now, I did, I mean, interestingly, Josh, I did hear that. that I didn't test it yet, but that a, a processor with fewer cores on it, like a Cabby Lake, will have lower latency because it has less hops to go through either direction to get to the other threads. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So if you look at the next graph, though, we're, we're looking at the Ryzen processor and um, focus on the bottom part of it first, where like the X's still cross. So there you'll see the bottommost point is where threads are talking to other threads on the same uh, physical core. And there, you know, it's a little bit higher than Intel, but it's consistent. So you're like 26 nanoseconds or something like that. And then the line kind of above it around the 40 nanosecond mark is when any thread talks to any other thread on the same core complex. Remember that Ryzen processors are built in, in quad core complexes that they then merge together on one chip. So the eight core Ryzen 1800X is actually um, two quad core CCXs on the same system. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the top of that, where you're up to like 140 nanoseconds, that is what the communication latency is when any thread on CCX1 wants to talk to any thread on CCX2 or vice versa, right? So there's a huge latency jump um, when any data or communication needs to occur between the two CCXs through the infinity fabric that connects them. And so while, while the data on the bottom of that graph validates that Microsoft was mapping the cores to SMT threads uh, correctly in Windows 10 through the scheduler. Um, the line at the top was kind of new and interesting information. We had never, didn't know what the values were of these latency or what the impact was on this latency. We, we assumed the latency would be higher, but we didn't know how much or, 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 or uh, you know, to what degree. Um, and, and now we, we look at it, and, and the rest of the story kind of looks at, okay, is this maybe the issue? Is it is it the fact that games um, that have very interdependent thread uh, topologies, where those threads need to talk to each other fairly often, um, if they're across CCXs, is that latency what, what's holding things up? 
Uh, whereas workloads like Cinebench or Handbrake that are given chunks of data, fairly large chunks of data to go work on at a time before they have to report back, um, the, that latency isn't as apparent. It's hidden in the wash of time uh, on those on those particular applications. So I'm, you know, it's still a working theory. We still have other stuff we're working on, uh, but you know, even AMD came to the point where they they put out a public post that said we do not believe the Windows 10 schedulers are at fault for any of the issues that we're seeing, and you know they're working other other avenues of talking with game devs and whatnot. Um, so that's that's kind of where where we left it, right? Is we we I believe we proved that there's no SMT issue, and then AMD confirmed there was no SMT issue on Windows 10, uh, and we have I think the best proof point that the running theory of the CCX divisions causing uh, this performance penalty uh, being true. I think we have the best chance of like kind of showcasing that through future work. If I wasn't out of town for the last week. Um, so yeah, Josh, something what's else, your, what's your input to on add, this? Something else to add in and something we haven't tested yet. And I think that we probably will do here hopefully soon is mm-hmm. we haven't addressed bus contention because infinity fabric is essentially a bus. That's inside. It, it 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 connects all the different parts: memory controller, PCIe Express controller, uh, the CCXs. And when you have a lot of traffic on that, how does it handle bus contention? How is latency increased, or does it stay the same when you've got a lot of traffic going from memory to CPU to graphics card uh, to I/O when you're doing these pings? We haven't quite found that out yet, and it's something interesting that that we. We should probably take a look at because that could add yet another level of complexity as well as mm-hmm. well as potential latency if if bus contention is an issue with this current generation of Ryzen processors. Yeah, uh, yes, and, and that kind of creates a whole new set of tests we could do. Like, do we run the same latency tests while a big NVMe transfer is happening? Um you know, Run Tomb do, Raider. It, it seems to <laughs> show the worst. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. do the latency and uh, see. And, and you know, I've well, seen I've seen people say that if you, uh, you know, if you overclock the memory, if you put the memory at much higher speeds, then the Infinity Fabric is running at higher speeds. And then if we do that, do we see, you know, decreased latency in that application where it's doing thread to thread communication? Um, and so there's a whole bunch of things that both AMD and the community and editors and people in forums who have these products are actually, you know, testing through. And that's one of the things that's really cool. Despite all of the animosity and bullcrap from comments and people, you know, accusing us of, of, of being paid by NVIDIA or Intel or AMD, depending on the given week, um, the cool part is every once in a while you find somebody who's willing to have like a really interesting discussion about the product at hand and has good input and you're bouncing ideas off each other. It's like, okay, let's test this other thing. Right. And that's kind of what happened with this, with this story even here. Um, and I, I think we have a couple of different avenues lined up to, to do more interesting things as well, looking at cash and all that type of stuff. And that's, you know, when you guys talk about a little bit later in the news section uh, about the Ryzen, you know, FMA uh, instruction issue, that was a forum discovered problem, right. That is, you know, maybe not as as big of a deal as it might have initially seemed, but um, is is still important for those guys to be able to find and A and B's engineers to to locate and fix. So, um, I, despite despite the negativity by a lot of people on this on this story and in and in forums and all that stuff and in Reddit, uh, I, I'm very pleased with A and B's reaction to it. 
you know, they weren't very ho- they weren't hostile about the story. They instead asked questions about how we came to these findings and you know duplicated it and then put out their their statement. Um, which I don't know if that's yeah the the I don't know if it's, we want to move down the rundown to the rising community update if it's if it were if it's the same thing. But they essentially noted that you know SMT performance was not affected by Windows 10 scheduler. Um, and but they also talked about temperature reporting. If you remember when we were talking about our initial review of this of these parts, I was confused at how good the load temperatures were and how bad the idle temperatures were. I guess that's right. Yeah. Um, and as it turns out, on the 1800X and on the 1700X, they were accidentally adding 20 degrees Celsius offsets, if I understand this correctly, but not on the 1700. Um, which means, you know, the when I, when I was seeing 73 degrees Celsius overclocked temperatures, it was actually 93 degrees Celsius overclocked temperatures, which makes a lot more sense based on how much voltage we were pumping through that baby um, versus, you know, I think when we said, when we saw idle temperatures, they were at like 50, 55 C and now it'll be, you know, 30, 35 C, uh, which again, makes more sense in that regard. No um, oh, wait, no, go the other way. No, I don't know. I, I still have to figure this out, but uh, it, it clearly that there, there are some bugs needing to go through on these motherboard bioses. I'm hearing that, We'll have uh, updated BIOSes from most of these vendors in the next two weeks, maybe three weeks, that update these issues and a couple of other things as well. So, and, but again, like AMD had a, uh, Robert over at AMD posted this long blog post. You know, here's the issues that you pe- people have reported. Here's the ones we can address now. Here's the ones uh, that we're still researching on, and they were very open and very honest about it. And uh, you know, I made that comment to them about being very happy that they were that overt about, you know, Hey, we have an issue and we're working on it. We're going to fix it. And, uh, you know, they wanted to be able to say that type of stuff faster, but every message they put out has to vet through a legal department and, you know, all the product managers and PR have to go through everything. So it's definitely, um, not as easy as Alan and I sitting around running some tests and hitting the submit button on a story, I guess. Uh, but still, but still pretty interesting, Interesting stuff. Any other thoughts from anybody on that before we move on to our final Ryzen segment before I head out? Uh, I that think there's the going to be a lot more. Dis- completely failed me. Say again, Jeremy. I was just going to say this is not the first time that monitor, like hardware temperature monitoring software has utterly failed me. I it happens. Yeah. I, it, yeah, I, I mean, and, it, and it's a new it's a new system, so like. You have to understand the processor is is likely not reporting a number to something mm-hmm. like eight to sixty four. They're reporting some some variable that needs to be translated into a, a temperature. And if you don't have if you don't have never seen this architecture before, it's maybe a little bit more difficult for uh, system engineers, even BIOS engineers, clearly to um, oh, to absolutely. really know if they're producing the right number <laughs> at the end of their algorithm. I- and I mean, the one that always I'm going to remember, because it's one of the reasons you ended up with me, is that bloody A7A266. Like, I was using using Asus's hardware temperature monitoring system. I can't remember what it was called at the time. But it was literally telling me I was spiking from 180 degrees Celsius down to about 30 degrees Celsius every measurement, and it made 10 measurements a second. I'm trying to think, damn, I wish I had a heat sink that could actually remove that much heat instantaneously. Right. 
it, it's it's not possible. This is fixable. I don't think it's anything to worry about. I'm sure the people making comments will disagree, but <laughs> if I were Agreed. to have Josh, you're going to say a something. Clo- a close. If I were to have a closing comment on this, it's that Ryzen isn't broken. It's it's not like there's some fatal flaw, some Achilles heel that is going to knock it down in a variety of workloads. A lot of these things can be fixed on the developer side by just understanding that hey, we've got to keep. Uh, these workloads and and data sets so that they're aimed at the right CCXs so they can operate together and have the minimum amount of latency involved when communicating uh, the data and results from each of the uh, uh, the processing cores. So don't think that this is broken. It's kind of working as intended, and there are going to be workarounds and good software developers. We'll understand this. There are going to be flags and say, hey, if we're dealing with an AMD Ryzen, uh, you know, we, we we partition out this workload on this CCX, do this on this other, and everybody's happy because information is flowing as it should. But that just is going to take right. some developer uh, elbow grease to get done. And AMD is, is certainly, uh, from what they said, are, are really partitioning out well sending out a lot of, of, of test machines to these other developers in both games and other software types to hopefully improve overall performance once they get the hang of it. Cool. Um, so the last thing we're going to touch on is, I wanna, was it actually published out there? Yeah, it was. The uh, AMD announced the Ryzen 5 series of CPUs today uh literally rise i think they did it just so we could talk about it on the podcast if i'm if i'm going to guess correctly on their timing here and josh you wrote this piece up um and i'm just reading it for the first time because i wasn't part of the presentation they have a ryzen 5 1600x 1600 1500x and 1400 ranging from 249 dollars down to 169 dollars so i think this is going to be the price range where a lot more people even more people are suddenly going to be interested in what the performance these offer. Uh, and the top two SKUs, the 1600 and 1600X, are six cores, 12 threads. And then you get down into four core, eight thread parts. Uh, you talk about the coolers. We've got the clock speeds in there. It's uh, Okay, so the six core parts are 3.6 to 4.0 or 3.2 to 3.6, which is pretty impressive. Um, yeah, especially that 1600X at 249. Yeah, yeah, you're basically getting the same clock speeds as the 1800X for half the money. No, yeah, for half the dollars, but for two less cores. Uh, so that's yeah, it's, it's a pretty good. So it's pretty it's good equaling deal. out the what Intel i7-6800K in terms of cores and threads. Hmm? Yep. And the 6800K I think is like 330 or 350 maybe. Um, and then this 249 is kind of in the range of the Core i5-7600K, I think, as well. Um, and that's kind of, you know, this is, while, while the Ryzen 7s were the Core i7 attack, the Ryzen 5 is likely to be the Core i5 attack, which, you know, numerically makes sense. Probably not an accident that they did that. One question I have, and I already saw in the chat as well, is did they say in the talk whether or not it was a four-core CCX and a two-core CCX or three and three? I asked that, and I was not answered. And they did not go over it in the presentation, and I didn't receive any response uh, from folks in there after the presentation was done. 
So interesting. We don't know. They didn't tell me. They certainly didn't talk about it in the presentation. So your guess is as good as mine. I, I, I'm wondering if it's both. That depending on the die they get back, they may have some with a four and two or some with a three and three. Uh, I'm curious if that's the case, what the performance implications would be of either instance, right? Like three, three by three might make the most sense in terms of balancing performance. Um, but four plus two might make the most sense for, Hey, like four threaded applications will be able to work better in that scenario. Uh, I was going to say, we already know the threads talk to each other more quickly than the the comparable, uh, Intel processor. 20 nanosecond uh, delay versus 40 nanosecond. So the 4 by f- and 2 makes more sense in a way until it jumps to the other CCX. But if you can actually get a I can see focus both. on yeah. that, it might actually, you might be hunting down Bin's uh, processors again, which we haven't done for a long time. Uh, at looking yeah. for, in my thought, in it's, my theory, the 4 by 2 in perhaps another, maybe it's a 3 by 3 Could be fun. You know, I... I I think the six core ones, it's not as big of a difference because you're going to have eight megs of L3 cache on each, on each CCX. And yeah, you got four cores on one and two on the other. I think that's not going to be as big of a deal as compared to the four core eight thread, because that's going to be a huge amount of potential performance. If you've got two and two on there and they decide to, you know, possibly split the L3 in half, you're going to have a lot of interesting bus traffic wait, over that kind wait, of workload. I'm sorry. Did you say that the four core would be two twos or one four? We don't know. Okay. Okay. They haven't told two us. Twos, that, but two the twos worst would be case, like probably worst a case pretty scenario bad situation to be two. in. Yeah. I mean, six right, thread, you've got, you've got one full and two on the other CCX. Right. That's, I mean, that's not the greatest but it's not a big deal as compared but when you've got two and two and we have seen um you know people kind of disable cores on the ccx's and run that mm-hmm. and the results are not positive so i'm i'm real curious how what amd is going to mm-hmm. do here with those four yeah. core products and and they and they had to make these decisions before our story came out Right. So I, I'm hopeful that they found that in their own internal testing and did something, did something about it. Right. Like that they're going to make that decision. Cause now, like I said, we have the, as soon as we get the parts in, we're going to be able to have that tool and look back and see what, what the answer is. And then, you know, start to have another data point to tell the story of, of what these processors are doing and why. Um, I'm just so. waiting for core unlocking. Right, yeah, if you get the six core, you can unlock it to an eight. <laughs> it's happened in the past. We lost Josh. Yeah, Josh just dropped. Oh, no, I bet I bet he's rebooting his internet. Uh, well, we have two options. We could just pause here, and you guys can cut it in later, or we just keep on talking. Uh, we can well, give but based on your dramatic pause, I think we're oh. going to cut it here. Well, now that we kicked Ryan out of the uh, stream, everything smells so much better, and instead we've we've gotten Maury in to replace him, and he's going to talk to us about the wonderful, wonderful Cabby Lake delitting. Flip your lid, Maury. All right, thank you, Josh. Um, so Cabby Lake, the whole thing with the Cabby Lake has some pretty good performance, but 
And, well, it'll hit 5 gigahertz pretty easily. But it runs really hot. Um, the speculation with that is that Tim that Intel used with uh, the processor was kind of inferior um, when compared to the uh, last generation. Because the last generation chips, the Skylake stuff ran super cool. Uh, <clears throat> so a lot of people, and uh, Kyle's in the uh, chat, I think still, um, a lot of people, including Kyle, started deleting processors, and they would basically delete the processor, put new goop on, usually using uh, Collaboratory Ultra or something, liquid metal type stuff, uh, put the heat spreader back on, and you know, you'd see a minimum of 20, 20 C uh, temperature decline, which was, you know, is, is pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, given all this, I, I'm, you know, I like to dabble the kind of stuff. I, um, I didn't want to pay for shipping to get one from Europe though. So I actually found a local guy that makes them down in Houston, um, ordered one from him. Uh, the guy uh, owns rocket cool and um you know very easy it's you know he's a machinist it's basically a, a acrylic part um you put the pro you put the proc in you know uh, tighten a screw it uh, pops the heat spreader off very easily uh very cleanly uh clean it up and then um there's another piece the white piece you put on and it actually guides the heat spreader back on um you you know of course you have to use um some kind of uh adhesive back i use i chose to use black rtv because it's uh automotive safe and all and it's electronic safe and all that stuff but very easy and you know given the um the the testing i did before and after i did see the you know i saw somewhere between 15 20 c drop in temperatures uh, both uh overclocked and at uh stock settings so <clears throat> i mean get, get, the thing is uh, with with this with this procedure it, it it's not it, it is a guaranteed temperature drop, but you're not guaranteed to not damage your processor. That using this device does minimize damaging your processor because you don't. Um, you know, there's a couple other methods you can use. You can use a razor blade to actually basically you take a razor blade around the edge of the uh, the heat spreader to to, uh, to to break the seal on the existing adhesive. The problem with the razor blade is you could dig into the PCB. You dig into the PCB, you kill the proc. Chances are, uh, you can also use a vice method, which uh, I actually used on my 4700K, and that works too. You know, you basically put the processor in a vice, use a wood block, and tap it off very carefully. The, the heat spreader that is, that works. Is, is that also, the one where you actually crack the die? That's the one where I cracked the die, but I yeah, didn't crack the, the die in the process. I cracked the die when I actually tried to naked cool the CPU. So I will never try that again. This one, I, I, um, you know, I uh, took the heat spreader off and then uh, glued it back down with RTV. So, um, but but the the process is very simple. You know, you um, you just have to go take it slow. You know, you put the thing in the device, crack the heat spreader off, clean it real well with alcohol and some uh, some elbow grease. Um, now, to actually put the Cool Laboratory Ultra on, I actually use Scotch tape around the uh, around the die basically covering the PCB so I wouldn't get any of the uh, the Ultra on the PCB because that stuff is highly conductive. It's, um, I think it's basically uh, um, liquid gallium metal, uh, so it's got a very extremely low melting point. Uh, but, you know, you, you put it on, then you just uh, put the heat spreader on, glue it back down, and, you know, give it about 24 hours to cure, and you have a 
brand new related proc with really nice temps. Yeah, it looks like an old Athlon that I did, uh, the Tim on it properly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it works real well. works really well. What's what's the jig cost, the, the tool here? Okay, so the tool uh, comes in two pieces. Nothing if you pieces. printed it for them. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, yeah, you, can, you can print them. Um, if you buy it from Rocket Cool, they're, uh, it's $30 for the D-litter, and then for the, uh, for the white harness to actually relay the processor, it's another 8 bucks. So it's about 40 bucks, and then maybe it's another 7 to 10 bucks for the uh, Cool Laboratory Ultra. Mm. Um, yeah. RTV can pick up anywhere, automotive store, Walmart, wherever, but... So it's it's not bad. It's, I mean, it's about probably all said and done, you know, fifty dollars plus, you know, um, two hours, you know, or at least an hour or two worth of work. Because again, you want to take your time doing this, and you know, maybe a day or two down to make sure that the uh, that the uh, heat spreader is bonded to the PCB with the RTV. Well, that's so. like two fifty a degree, so that's not bad. Mm-hmm. You said about twenty degrees difference. Yeah, if yeah, if you go to the what is it, the third page? Yeah, the third page is no fourth sorry, the fourth page has a, a performance specs. So if you show those graphs in there, you can actually see the performance of both stock and overclocked. Um also the the nice thing with this, once I did do the overclock, I actually saw an increase in performance. Base overclock I was able to get on the, on this processor was five gigahertz with a four dot seven ring bus once i uh relitted it i was able to push that up to 5.1 gigahertz with a 4.8 ring bus which yes it's only 100 100 100 megahertz but you know it's still an increase and i mean i had to bump the voltage a little bit but the uh, temps really didn't go up uh with that increase so it was a nice little overall thing to do but um but yeah, if you go like uh, scroll up to the if you scroll up to the overclock uh, the CPU overclocking graph temp graphs, you can actually see the no a little scroll up a little bit. Yeah, see that graph right there. You can actually this is a really good representation of the um, temperature savings you'll see. There was a twenty percent uh, twenty degree savings on uh, the max temp, a fourteen degree savings on the uh, average max temp, and um, was that about a 15, 14, 15 degree savings uh, on the uh, on the overall average. So um, the reason why the temperatures are reported like this is because the um, the temperatures on the, Ca- the Cabby Lake and, you know, for the Sky Lake and even the generation before that, the Haswell, were very jumpy. So it's better, it's best to report averages rather than absolutes as far as uh, this stuff goes. So, But, but the max but the is back- lower than the average previous. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, max is, the max is about two degrees uh, over the the overall average. So, it's, yeah, it's it's a significant savings. Yeah. Uh, because 69 degrees C, if you're running your, you know, if your room temp runs about 23 to 25 like mine does, um, you know, 69 degrees C is pushing 95 to 100 degrees C on the processor temp, and nothing's going to remain stable at that, at that uh, point for long. So, I mean, usually a processor, you want it between, um, I mean, running uh, the uh, running the AVX stuff like I do for stress testing, you don't want to go over 80 to 90 C. 
Um, that and 90 C is, is is really pushing the limits. I mean, 80 to 85 is usually safe with the AVX. The AVX 2 stuff tends to push the the uh, the, the uh, heat levels and the stress levels on CPU, which is why I use them for my stress testing. But um, but yeah, yeah it, certainly is this this looks like more of a, a savings in in temperature than it does an overall overclocking. But boy, what a what a savings in temp it is. So uh, thanks, Maury. That was uh, really interesting stuff. I'm glad you went through that and and uh, certainly teaches us all a few things about modding your own stuff. Moving along, unless you got anything else to add. No, um, the only other thing I want to say about this is that this really also, I mean, all my stuff, I, all the temperatures and all I reported here on, on uh, water, um, but uh, the relating, you know, with that reduced temp, you know, it makes that, uh, five gigahertz speed achievable and manageable with a, with a, a high end air cooler also. So um, I, you know, with, with the with the stock um, Cadby Lake, I really would not recommend using air cooler because you probably melt the thing. <laughs> so I guess I won't be overclocking anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, who's it, got it Nvidia Jetson TX two? Jeremy or Ken? Who's more interested in these things? I mean, ARM SSC really screams Jeremy to me, so. Well, it certainly does <laughs> now. Uh, and you didn't put Jetson into the tag, so I can't find the one I did as well. Uh, but the, the number one thing I learned, because I was looking for a good title, is that the Jetson's theme song only had four lines in it. It's damn hard to make a good joke out of just four lines. But uh, <laughs> this, is, this is the brand new Pascal GPU from NVIDIA. Uh, and it's a nice friggin' jump uh, from what the previous version was. Uh, Isn't that essentially the size of an SSD? Smaller, I think. Uh, it's smaller. smaller. Oh, there we go. I, I'm trying to see here. Uh, so essentially what they did was, uh, and it was for Onyx, uh, for idiot stick in the chat, uh, that did this. So they've essentially doubled. You've got four gigs of uh, low-power DDR4 as opposed to four in the previous generation. Uh, the memory bandwidth is almost doubled up to 58.4 gigabits a second, or gigab- gigabytes a second. Uh, EMCC storage is about the same at about 32 gigabytes. And uh, the other thing that it added, if I can find it, is it, it's now a pair of uh, Denver 2 CPUs. They're 64-bit, four Cortex-A57s, and Pascal graphics, which on something this itty-bitty is kind of impressive to see. I mean, I... Oh, I'll toss up the link here. I, I, I got a different shot of it where you can actually see uh, the, the wireless antennas coming off of it, the uh, USB coming off of it, and get a, a better idea of just how tiny this buddy little thing is. It's it's going to offer a lot of power for people that are looking for something very small, very programmable, for very niche markets. I mean, it's not going to up in your next build. On the other hand, if, if you're running Linux and it runs uh, the... Uh, Jetpack 3.4, which is based off of the Linux 4.415 kernel, 
which is one of the long-term service branch kernels. So it's going to be around for a long time. This is something you can sort of look at if you've got something that you need extremely low power, a decent amount of storage, frankly, a ridiculous amount of connectivity, and you want to develop something. This is going to do just about anything you could want it to and a bit more. Yeah, uh, I actually have uh, a couple of friends still in school who do autonomous vehicle stuff. And this is, I mean, this is the perfect sort of platform to run that stuff on. Because, yeah. I mean, you're doing a whole lot of computer vision stuff and GPU accelerated stuff that's easily GPU accelerated. And you probably want to start to get into deep learning at that point, neural networks, because that's the hotness for autonomous vehicles. So for a $900 dev kit, especially if you're talking about things like education and auto and all of this stuff, it's, it's a drop in the bucket and a really quick way to prototype something with the, the Linux dev kit tools seem to be pretty well developed. Everything is just kind of integrated. You can run CUDA just directly from the Linux install on it and not worry about hardware, but worry about your code instead, which is definitely a big advantage. Yeah. Well, and the long-term service branch means you're not going to be recompiling in Linux again just to try and figure out how the hell to make everything work. It's going to keep working. I, I'd love to see how this sort of stacks up against some of the stuff that's been out for two or three years that people are just absolutely and totally used to. I, the one thing I didn't see, and it might just be that it didn't look hard enough, was... Uh, a nice socket for a bridge on top of it to add more shields to it, uh, like Arduino does. Uh, I don't and, think they do that. They have that forty-pin breakout, so yeah, or that two hundred. I think it's like a two hundred-pin breakout. So I think that'd okay. be possible. Uh, I don't think that's a whole lot because there's not a it's not a lot to add to the dev board, and it does it does have things like serial and USB, so it might not be necessarily a tidy package, but you can add on peripherals. It's pretty easy. If you actually need them. And so it, it, I think this is like a secret market that NVIDIA has done pretty well in with, because this is like the fourth or fifth Jetson board, maybe. They've kind of done it for yeah. just about every Tegra generation. And I don't think they would keep doing them if it was such a sort of drain. I don't know. Seems pretty cool. I think they're making money. I think they've been launched in a couple of cars recently. I, I think they've shown up in uh, stuff that actually was just purely AMD before where it was just ridiculously low power multiple graphic solutions this little baby is going to be showing up there uh, and in your one arm bandits as well probably it's interesting arm people stop emailing me I'm interested but not that into you you want a 2U chassis just filled with these things oh oh god we lost Josh sure we should have talked about FMA3 first to kill time and because we were just sort of talking about uh, self-driving cars and, you know, what's going into it, NVIDIA's got some competition. It would seem that uh, Intel just managed to buy out Mobileye. Uh, Mobileye is, uh, and I'm sure you've run into these guys as well, Ken, they're a computer vision company. Uh, they, there's a history between them and the Tesla, which honestly I didn't really read that much into apart from 
there's a little bit of bad feelings between the two, but you yeah. will find this on the Metal S. Uh, it is actually the Model S. You'll find it on the Autopilot 1.0 Model S. It's the 2.0. Ah. I don't know what hardware's in there. I think it might be NVIDIA hardware at this point because of how I much those two companies right. have talked and worked together. But Mobileye was powering the Autopilot 1.0 stuff, which is what Ryan's car has and was sort of the initial Autopilot thing that went out. And from what I understand, they essentially had like an SOC or a single ASIC that would do a lot of the functions, but it wasn't necessarily something that you could expand upon. Whereas Tesla Autopilot 2.0 is sort of turning every car into a neural neural network and taking in data. And they've they've been pushing out updates to add additional functionality. And they say this is all of the hardware they'll need to reach full autonomy. So Mobileye seemed to be a pretty good start and get them there with their current products, but sort of no path forward is sort of how I understand the situation. But, but if Intel gives you $15.3 billion... Yeah. I think they might be working on something. It's just I, it's just a thought. I mean, I, the, the thing, I, I, as soon as I read this, I'm thinking Intel, I'm like, I'm picturing Intel inside and a very tragically literal blue screen of death as they move to <laughs> Windows for the operating system running of the car. <laughs> I, I just, it just, just Ford did that for a while. It worked out all right for them. Yeah, but then they went to Cunix because, you know, BlackBerry. Every, th- that was the one smart acquisition that RIM slash BlackBerry has company. had. Like, if they didn't buy QNX, that company would be so dead. <laughs> but oh, as it turns so out, kind of they ended up buying... One of the companies that makes, I think they're like, they might be the only one, or there's one competitor for auto-approved mobile operating systems. Uh, yeah, and I can't even name it. Yeah, it's like... I know it's there, but I... Yeah, it, it's like autos, and I have a friend who does factory automation stuff, and they use QNX because they need real-time operating system. So it's like it, BlackBerry's the QNX company, and they occasionally come out with a overpriced Android handset, I think, at this point. Yeah. Well, they're they're trying to emulate IBM at this point. They've gone from a hardware company to a patent company. They just can't get rid of the hardware because it's a bit of a fetish of theirs, and I really wish they would. Because I mean, I swear honestly, we're going to get I it miss, right this time. We're going to get it right. Oh, I miss the old keypad. I mean, you guys all know I despise my little touchpad on my phone. I like keys. They they work. They make sense. They don't make up words as I'm trying to type because they think my finger is going to go somewhere, and they predict. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, Blackberries definitely did do that sort of prediction. It was better, but it was a lot better than uh, iOS or again uh, Android. <laughs> let's just let's just bring back T nine. Let's just just well, use T nine. Yeah, the ultimate prediction. cell phone enabled calculators. I like it. All right, shall we see if we got Josh back yet? He thinks so. He thinks so. So let's see how that'll Cut. work. <laughs> Is everyone ready for sound to just go insane? Yeah. Yeah, headphones just, off. If you're wearing headphones, maybe just kind of for a little bit. <laughs> we'll see. So our next story after that uh, small interruption by my internet, again, provided by Spectrum is the issues of Ryzen performance when running FMA3 workloads, it causes severe crashes. Not just crashes, 
but hard locks. Uh, HW bought a forum has uh, a, an individual there was able to replicate an issue with a certain workload using FMA three and it constantly caused Ryzen processors to hard lock. Uh, he released the source code. Multiple other people have run it and it shows the same behavior on any stock clocked Ryzen processor. So, Somebody tried it with an overclock, and it came out to be about 25% of the people were able to actually run this workload. So what it kind of tells us is that uh, power is not being delivered adequately to the, uh, the, the floating point SIMD portions of the Ryzen chips. And so it was going under apparent increased and greater load and causing it to just lock up because there was not a volt enough voltage or, or power being delivered to those. So it just couldn't complete its work and it hard locked. Uh, the guys who had it overclocked usually had higher voltage being applied across the entire chip. So they had harder running chips and it just seemed to work perfectly fine for about 25%. Now, uh, AMD has not officially said anything about this, but we have heard from sources inside AMD this is a legitimate problem, and it is going to be addressed through a firmware update on the BIOS. So this means the AGISA uh, protocol, which is kind of a, a bootstrap protocol that, that sets some of the lower-level um, performance and uh, characteristics of processors from AMD. So it's going to be a fix through there. You're going to need to update your uh, the BIOS on the motherboard, which is kind of required anyway, considering the issues that people have had on AM4 products so far. Uh, so it's an issue, something to watch out for. It is a bug, but it is one that looks to be fixable through firmware and uh, and and the necessary power application when your chips are running these type of uh, workloads. Totally so not that's looking it. at you, that's... Intel, with uh, several famous bugs under your belt that uh, couldn't be easily fixed. Yeah, it's like what Skylake had uh, had a had a issue Computational like error? this that yeah. they fixed. There's the whole uh, Photon thing. And the old mm-hmm. FDiv. Yeah, FDiv on, can never on, forget on the, the original Pentium. And remember, AMD is not uh, without fault here, too. The original True. Phenom B2 revisions had, uh, I can't remember what the cache thing was for a lookup that they had to disable. And it caused well, a, they call it a pretty big drop right? in performance, but the B3 revisions uh, fixed it. As it turns out, CPUs, kind of hard. Yeah. <laughs> You're dealing with many billions of transistors <laughs> and really complex structures throughout. So yes, you got to expect that. And it's a, it, and frankly, it's a miracle that any of them work at all. <laughs> yes, it's true. We, we have sure a thing one of the that we call make PFM. comments. Yeah, PFM, if you're one of the people that make our comments, magic. apparently uh, Keller designed this entire architecture by hand. Every single chip out there is is actually done by his hand. And he left no notes. So no one in AMD knows how any of them work anymore. <laughs> he, he, he got a drafting table and he just went at it. Yep. 
It's all you need. Slide yeah, roll, Herkley, drafting tales. Well, that's it. That's that is all the news and reviews for this week. Uh, it's been a busy week. Next week looks to be just as busy, and the week after that, it's kind of been a crazy Q one, Q two in the industry. And uh, you know what? We like it. We At like lots of new year. things. Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, nuts. last year was like it's, so. That thing we talked about last week, uh, we're, we're gonna talk about it again because we got nothing else. Yeah, so we've got Vega coming up. We've got more Ryzen processors. We've got motherboards. Uh, people are gonna be exploring memory now. We actually see a reason to buy the higher speed memory, <laughs> especially with Ryzen products. So you need at least thirty two hundred megahertz to to get really good performance out of them it's uh, it's an interesting and changing landscape and it's one we enjoy covering obviously and it's uh, good for us good for you guys to listen to because uh, certainly we have new stuff every week uh through that with uh, vr and uh kyle's got his new thing that's uh, hopefully going to go live here and in, in a while and um you know, it's just a lot of really interesting and exciting times up ahead. But with that, let's uh, let's hit our hardware and software picks of the week. Hey, hey, hey Josh, what, while you're going through the rundown, is is Naples Q4 or Q3? No, it's Q2. Q2? So that's Should be Q2. Is, it's supposed to be Q2. So that's coming up real soon, It's going to be late too. Q2, but Q2. All right, looking forward to that. Uh, I can't possibly be, cl- be close to Q2. It just 2017 just started. Don't be ridiculous. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're what two weeks away, two and, yeah. and a half weeks. Ken, it, it just keeps also, going faster and faster. Skylake X, getting in uh, beginning of Q3. They're saying GamersCon is GamersCon or something like that is a thing. Gamescom, games, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, it wouldn't be the first time Intel has launched a CPU at Gamescom. So, yeah, yeah. and they they will certainly do something to. Uh, shore up some potential losses they have to AMD and they're a competitive company. Uh, hardware software picks of the week. Ryan had one and it's his unending love of air travel and delays. Delta, Delta, due to Delta. Weather. Yeah, he's had absolutely no luck. So he left it. He was supposed to leave at like 7.30 a.m. from from Cincinnati and it ended up Leaving like at four thirty p.m. that day, and not definitely not his original flight either. No, no, there's nothing original about how he made his way out to the West Coast. Oh, and uh, we'll just skip to this and to say, Alan, he also has had some interesting air travel experiences. So weather in between fog and snow has been pretty rough across the yeah. U.S. Uh, Alan's original flight today was routed. Was supposed to go through Chicago, and then they rerouted it to try to go through DC. And where is he trying to get to? Uh, Sacramento. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So fun times for everybody in the air, and we we send our best regards to those suffering. I'm glad uh, I did my Jeremy. traveling last week. Oh wait, what? Glad I did my traveling what? last week. Yeah. Yeah. And here I'm sitting in like 56 degree weather and calm in Wyoming, of all places. 
Makes no sense. Jeremy. Uh, it's a fun world we're living in. Uh, and Kyle, we've already, uh, we're trademarking the bucket benchmark for uh, VR. So sorry you can't use that on your new site. You'll have to figure something else out. Uh, oh, am I sounding that bad? Or was that just a weird yeah, feedback? Just thing? move it. Just, just go. All right. So it's an oldie, but it's a goodie because in Canada, SSDs are freaking expensive. But hey, how about a nice 850 Evo M.2, 500 gig for $209? If you shop in Canada, you will know what this is. This is a damn good deal. If you shop in the US, you're probably laughing at us. But hey. Oh, that's 157 real dollars. Yeah. Hmm. That seems Which, pretty good to me. It's actually that's probably a, decent down there. And that's a really nice SSD. I've got one of those running in my main system. Yeah, the new hot stuff. Yeah, but do not you really NVMe. need that? I mean, you're, come on. You're not going to notice the bloody difference. And if you're building yes, an AMD system, you want to save a couple of bucks, but you got two M.2 slots probably. Here you go. Slap one of those in there and just enjoy. Well, fine. Josh, what are you slapping in? <laughs> um, we don't want to go there. Okay, we do. Uh, the GTX 1080. Now that the price has gone down and they're including a pretty good game, either with uh, For Honor or the Ghost Recon Wildlands. Uh, the Ghost Recon game looks really, really impressive. Not just graphically, but in terms of gameplay. Something I'd really kind of like to get into, but... Of course, I'm still trying to play Oblivion, so I'll never have the time. But uh, yeah, it's a MSI GTX 1080 uh, G Gamer Edition for 517 bucks. So we have the uh, price uh, cuts for the 1080 uh, actually hitting the world. Is is it not the correct uh, link? No, it is. I was just adding it to my cart to see the real price. Oh, I see. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it was about five seventeen if I if I see it correctly. So it's a nice, uh, good card, fast card. Comes with a nice game. If you're looking for a GPU upgrade, this is a pretty decent one. Unless you really just want to wait for that 1080 Ti at 200 bucks more. This turns out I'm uh, good. I want to see Vega. Damn it. Yeah, maybe someday. Ken, show us what you want. Look at my eyes. Now look slightly over at my headphones. You see these headphones? Don't they look very comfortable? I'm sorry. No. I'm still lost and in your Siri eyes. I decided to wake up for some reason. Uh, but these are the Biodynamic DT770 Pro 80-ohm version. Uh, I think I bought these in 2011, and I've been using the same pair. I did have to change the uh, little velour coverings on the earmuffs here. Uh yeah, they're velour. These are actually the most comfortable headphones I've ever worn. I can wear these for 12 hours straight, and they don't really get sweaty or anything. Uh, they're they're certainly not what you would call reference monitors. They're a little bit colored. They're a little bit heavier on the base than sort of flat studio monitors, which I, I tend to enjoy a little bit with some of the music I listen to. Uh, but for about 150 bucks. I've really enjoyed these headphones over the past six or seven years that I've owned them, and 
I think they're they're kind of the my go to recommendation for someone looking in the sub two hundred dollar range at headphones. I did have a bit of trouble finding any listings for them. This one on Amazon isn't Prime, which I thought was weird, but usually about one hundred fifty bucks is where they sit. And yeah, eighty ohms is just that sweet spot where you can kind of drive it by your motherboard without a special headphone amp or your phone or whatnot. If you try to get, there's a 30 ohm and a 250 ohm version of these headphones as well. The 30 ohms kind of don't have that oomph you'd want. I, th- I think the 80 is a good balance between sort of having the bass response that you're looking for in s- some just general purpose headphones. And then 250, you'd have to carry around a dedicated headphone amp. And I'm just not about that life at this at this time. <laughs> Sebastian can say what he want. I just I'm not I'm not about that life. <laughs> How's the sound sound isolation on those? Can you? Uh, these are open. They have other similar ones in their line that are closed. I forget. Or, no, well, these these are semi closed. We'll say uh, if you have them cranked, they'll link link out some noise. But beyond that, they're not too bad. And I can like I, c- I could hear you not on the microphone, standing mm-hmm. a couple of feet away. So. They're they're good for an office environment where no one's really going to hear your music and you're still going to be able to tell what's going on around you. Uh, I, I did have one complaint at the build quality. These these little plastic pieces broke at some point in, in the life of my headphones. So I actually I 3D printed replacements because the model is available because this is a fairly common issue. And I didn't feel like ordering the parts from Germany because that sounded like a waste of time. But yeah. And money. Yeah. Headphones are certainly a personal thing, but these are the ones that I enjoy. Ah, and they've got the sweet velour. They they are extremely comfortable. All that matters. They really are. Maury, tell us what you got. What you really, really got. All right. So, um, you know, browsing Steam like I do on a daily basis, looking for good deals. I came across this new game that's about to be released from Square Enix called uh, Near Automata. Um, it it looks like it's a it's not it's not quite a th- uh, first person. It's, it could be a blend of a third and first person. Maybe you may be able to change a view. I'm not sure. Again, it's unreleased, but it's got some R- R- RPG aspects to it. Um, gameplay looks really cool. It's, it's you know it's kind of a far future uh, robot versus evil computer overlord type thing, um, where you're basically in the uh, the human controlled robots coming back to the earth to destroy the computer overlords. Uh, it looks it looks really cool. Um, it could be decent. Again, it's unreleased, so I don't know for sure. But just from the preview looks and all, it, it looks like it could be decent. It it seems to support all the high end stuff. Um, you know, it needs DirectX 11, all that good stuff. So um, it could it could be a really decent could be a, a really decent game, especially if you're into the uh, whole cyberpunk, um, you know, type far, far future sci fi type games. So, and big swords, <laughs> and big swords, and lots of guns. Yes, and floaty little robot helpers. I, I I've heard a lot of good things about this game. It it seems pretty awesome if you go watch a video of people playing it. Um, now huh. it's not VR. This is just a regular thing. I mean, I don't I don't have a VR rig. I'm probably not going to get a VR rig for quite a while. You know, <laughs> the wife would have to green light that, and that's far far down on her list of anything she'd let me buy so uh, yeah we got a new kitchen coming in so i feel your pain 
feel the pain. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Uh, you can catch reruns of this at pcper.com slash podcast. You can follow Ryan at twitter.com slash rshrout. No, Ryan Shrout. Or you could uh, follow the pcper official at twitter.com slash pcper. Don't forget to subscribe. We would love your Patreon stuff. Certainly, I, I don't. Did Ryan ever get around to actually reading off some names? No. He didn't. Nope. No. Too many technical difficulties from me. I apologize. Thanks, Josh. Oh, that and he was on the toilet the whole time. Well, that too. So, but it was a big relief to him. Big. I hope so. Yeah. And with that, guys, I'm Josh Walworth. I'm Jeremy Hellstrom. I'm Maury Tittleman. And I'm Ken Addison. And the man behind the screen who we shouldn't pay attention to. Hi, guys. Alex Alex. L. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this content, consider supporting in-depth technical content by contributing at patreon.com slash pcper.